We're continuing this morning with Colossians. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 21. Specifically, Paul is teaching us about the family today. And he gives some very specific imperatives to you and I about how we should relate to one another in the family. And in order to do that, the best way, I think, to do that is to show you the way that family life has shifted even just over these last 50 or 60 years in America, the best way to do that is to go to the TV. So I'm going to show you this morning kind of how family life has transitioned through the years. I know some of you in this room grew up probably watching shows like Leave It to Beaver. And this is the American family at its finest, right? The father, the perfect children, although Beaver, he's really not that well-behaved. The mother who has the cookies waiting on the kitchen table when the children get home from school. This is the ideal family in the late 50s, early 60s, really even into the 1970s. So you have these shows that show just excellent family dynamics. Leave it to Beaver, The Cosby Show, Full House. All of these shows that many of us in this room grew up on where everything seemed to just be right. Not that they didn't have their problems, but for the most part, it was the ideal look at the family. And as we shift in culture, we move into the the late 1980s and the early 1990s, and you begin to have shows come out like Roseanne and Married with Children and The Simpsons, okay? Now, these are very popular shows, and even though there's traditional husband, wife, and children, the relationships between them are a little bit more dysfunctional, right? Children are disrespectful. Parents, they bicker in front of their children, all these things that would not have been anything like what we would have found just 30 years earlier and leave it to Beaver. So fast forward to today, and a very popular show that is still on ABC is Modern Family, right? Many of you know this show, Modern Family uh, chronicles the story of a man who is divorced from his first wife. He marries a new wife who's much younger, and he has some biological children through that first wife, and then him and his new wife have a child. And two of his biological children from the previous marriage One is in a committed relationship with children, and then the other one is a homosexual man who is in a committed relationship that has an adopted daughter. So you can just see that over the last 50 or 60 years, television is not the one setting the trend for what a normal family is. Television is responding to the way families have changed over time. You see, people watch television shows, especially shows about the family, because they can relate to them. And so as we try to look at what Paul's saying here about the family in a first century context, it's going to look a little different than even Leave it to Beaver. So as we study Paul this morning, and as we study his word, let's see what he has to say about the family and a little bit more this morning. So if you will, we'll begin in uh, chapter 3, verse 15. We're actually going to jump back a few verses earlier. And this is what he says... And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting 
in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Even before we discuss the family this morning, there's a couple of things that Paul points out to us that I believe are really, really important. Number one, he says in verse 15 that peace is supposed to rule our hearts. The actual Greek word for that means to arbitrate, to act as a judge. So the peace that's in our heart is actually supposed to be a filter through which we experience various things in life. The good news about that is, for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, because the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, no matter what circumstances we experience, no matter what hardships, no matter what God brings our way, we can put our head down every night knowing that at the end of the day, the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. Not only does Paul tell us that it rules in our hearts, he tells us that we're actually called to this. So you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, one of the qualities that should describe us is peace. That's what Paul says here. He also says it in Galatians 5. It's a fruit of the Spirit to have peace, which means, brothers and sisters, we need to be individuals who display the peace of God to those that we interact with. So this means what happened on Tuesday in this country has profound implications for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. And I don't mean about who was elected, and I don't even mean about policy. Your response to what happened on Tuesday will either display the peace of Christ or it will not. And that is your decision. A divided church cannot heal a divided country. And so this morning, no matter where you stand, it is your job to promote the peace of Christ and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of what happened on Tuesday. Let's keep the mission of Jesus Christ the main thing. And that is not a political party. That is not a political candidate. That is Jesus coming to earth, living a perfect life, and dying for you and I. That's the message of Christianity, nothing else. I want to show you, I met some people one year ago to the date. Many of you remember that we had our International Mission Board commissioning service here about one year ago to the date, and I met a couple. She was pregnant at the time. They were getting ready to be appointed to go to Southeast Asia. And so I follow their updates, and they send us monthly newsletters, ways that we can pray for them. And I want to show you one of the pictures that she sent me this week. This is her one-year-old daughter who was not born when they were here one year ago. Her name is Breely, and she's very cute, but that's not really the reason I put the picture up on the screen. You see that man in the background right there? He serves as a security guard in the building where they live. And what the picture can't really do justice to is the fact that that book that he's reading in the background, it's the Bible, and it's the first time he's ever read his Bible his entire life. Brothers and sisters, that is our mission. God used a little one-year-old girl to bridge the gap for her mother to have a conversation with this security guard in her building about the gospel, and he receives a Bible for the first time in his life. 
That is what we are on earth for, to proclaim the gospel. And as Paul keeps writing here, not only are we to exhibit peace and to let the peace of God rule in our hearts, but we are to let the word of God dwell in us. And he uses an adverb here, richly. So not only are we just letting it dwell, we let it dwell in our hearts richly, which means we're not just passive spectators of the word of God. We're invested in it. We meditate on it. We saturate our entire lives in God's word. Richly is a key adverb here that Paul uses. Now for you and I, the concept of memorizing things has kind of gone by the wayside. Why memorize anything when you can just pull out your phone and get the answer to whatever question you might have in a matter of seconds? But in Paul's day, and even I'll submit to you, you and I today have an obligation to memorize what God's Word says. Not because it's going to get us extra favor with God, but because when you memorize God's Word, it takes it from your head and it implants it in your heart. And when you need it, In those situations, the Holy Spirit springs it up out of you. So when you're in that conversation at work or at the office that you know you don't need to be involved in, you can remember what James tells us, that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Or when you're in that traffic jam on the interstate or somebody cuts you off, you can remember what Jesus teaches about anger. So we don't memorize things just to have head knowledge. We memorize things... So that it can transform our hearts. So we want to dwell in the word of God richly. William Tyndale is one of the early reformers. Many of you know of him. He died in the 15th century. He's instrumental in translating the Bible into English in the format that we now have it today. So the printing press we know is invented. Tyndale translates the Bible into English. And he actually helps get mass production of the English Bible to all people. Very, very influential for you and I. In fact, the King James Version, which uh, many of us grew up reading, is largely adopted from the text that Tyndale creates. Unfortunately for William Tyndale, he has this conflict with the King of England at the time, King Henry VIII. And it's such a conflict that King Henry VIII has Tyndale strangled alive and then his body burned. Because... Tyndale believed that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone because he believed in the forgiveness of sins because he believed in the grace and mercy that God provides you and I things that you and I just look at and say well absolutely we believe that Tyndale believed it and he gave his life for it history tells us that shortly before he passed away his final words are Lord I pray that you would open up the eyes and the heart of the king of England And exactly almost three years later, King Henry VIII required every church in England to provide a copy of the English Bible to its members. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be casual about this book. We can't just be passive spectators. We have to devote our lives to what it says. To the point that we would be willing, like Tyndale did, to give his life, to translate it, to give his life for what it said. And then we move to the most famous verse in all of Colossians. 
Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is a verse that you and I know. This is a verse that we should have on our dashboard of our car, on the refrigerator at home, underneath the monitor at our office. The great thing about this verse, not only is it well known, but it prevents us from being able to compartmentalize our Christian faith to what we do in here on Sundays. Men, especially in the room, can identify with this. We are excellent at compartmentalizing parts of our life. Can't tell you how many times I've come home from work, well, what'd you do today? And I can't remember. Because we compartmentalize certain aspects of our life. We leave our work life at work. We leave our home life at home. But we should never leave our faith in Christ just to the worship you and I engage in on Sunday morning. That is not worship. Corporate worship is only a part of the larger worship that we do throughout the week. Even when you're spending time in the Word and praying to the Father during the week, it shouldn't just end when that time is over. It should permeate every aspect of your life. And if we follow what this verse is saying here, it's an ethic that we can actually live our lives by. No matter the situation, we can ask ourselves, can I do this act? Can I say these words in the name of Jesus Christ? Can I give thanks to God through this act or through these words? So Colossians 3.17 is an ethic by which we can always live our lives. And then Paul gets to the really, really good part that I know all of you are waiting for with bated breath. The commands to the family. And before we even unpack what Paul is talking about here in verse 18 and following, I want you to just consider a few things this morning. You know, when you come to a text, any text, you should do your homework, you should study what it means. But there's a couple of things that I think would be really helpful, little principles for you to go by. Anytime you come to a text that uh, you wrestle with, that you maybe disagree with, that you don't understand, here are some principles that you can use that I borrowed from someone else, okay? So I don't want you to think these are original. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Everyone knows that, right? So I borrowed these from a pastor in New York City, and these are excellent points that I think will be very helpful to you as you unpack not only what we're about to, to read from Paul, but any biblical text. Number one, I want you to consider the fact that when you approach any text of the Bible, it might not mean what you think it means, and it might not be teaching what you think it actually teaches. There was a Jewish scholar by the name of Robert Alter who was an expert in Jewish literature of the first century and he wrote a book entitled The Art of Biblical Narrative. It's been out a long time. And in this book, he talks about the book of Genesis and how when we read the book of Genesis, we look at guys like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph and they're, they're the pillars of our faith, right? Throughout the Old Testament they're mentioned. Even in Hebrews, Okay, in the New Testament, they're mentioned. And you look at these guys and you see that their treatment of their wives, their treatment of women in general, was not very good. They engage in polygamy, they sell their wives, and these are the men that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are supposed to hold up as phenomenal human beings. So that's one institution that you find throughout Genesis is polygamy, even among the people that we are supposed to adhere to as heroes of the faith. And the other one is primogenitor. 
It's just a fancy term for the oldest born gets all the privileges, all the rights, all the blessings. So these two institutions are universal in ancient Near Eastern culture in this time. It's not just in the Bible, it's everywhere. These are common practices. And what Robert Alter says in his book is, is when you study Genesis the way that we're actually supposed to study it, when you dig down deep, what you find is that the book of Genesis subverts both of these institutions. Let's think about it for a second. Every time polygamy is mentioned in Genesis, it is in the context of chaos and disaster. It never goes right for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even when they're involved in these polygamous relationships, there are consequences for that. So we don't just read that and think God endorses that, because when you read Genesis, you see that that's not the case. And when you look at primogenitor, what you find is that it's the youngest throughout Genesis that is honored and used by God. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's Abel, not Cain. It's Joseph and Benjamin. It's not Jacob's oldest sons. So what we find is when we study these texts and we work hard at trying to find out what they really mean, they don't always promote or indicate what we think they're meaning. Number two, another thing we need to realize when we approach any biblical text, that you and I, as 21st century American Christians, view the text through our cultural bias. Let's take slavery for an example. When you and I talk about slavery, our minds immediately go to 17th, 18th, 19th century slavery. That was horrible. That was sinful. Those that were involved were sinful. The church that was involved was sinful. We don't endorse it in any way, shape, or form. It was wrong. We should repent of it. But when Paul is talking about slavery, later on in Colossians, you need to realize that that's not the type of slavery he's talking about. Murray Harris wrote a book, he's another scholar, he wrote a book about Greco-Roman slavery in the first century. And some of the things that he points out in that book about slavery is, number one, they were virtually indistinguishable from everyone else in society. They were paid, they could hold managerial positions, they could be freed, and oftentimes they were even more educated than their owners. Now, I'm not here to endorse any type of slavery to you this morning, but what I'm wanting to tell you is, when you read about slavery and what Paul is talking about here, it is different than what you and I think about slavery in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. In fact, he writes an entire book to a slave owner named Philemon, and if you go read that book, you'll see that Paul wants Philemon to treat his runaway slave better than he's treating him. So we can't just approach these biblical texts on face value and say, I don't like what it says, and dismiss it. We have to do our homework. So... As we come now to what Paul says about the family, here's what he says in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That is a key phrase. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. When we talk about biblical submission, here's what we're not talking about. We're not saying that the man has ownership over his wife. We're not saying that the woman is inferior to the husband. We're not saying that the woman has to remain with her husband no matter what he does because she has to submit. Submission is never okay in the context of an abusive relationship. 
This doesn't even apply to those outside the church. So we better not ever try to go tell a wife who doesn't know anything about Jesus that she needs to submit to her husband because she's not under that frame of reference. This is not a command or a blanket statement for all women. This is specifically written to wives submitting to your husband. This is not a universal thing. It also doesn't mean that men can shake their tea glasses and expect their wives to come fill it up for them. That is not biblical submission. That is not what we are talking about. As is fitting in the Lord. You see, oftentimes when we talk about submission, we want to think that it's about action. But really, biblical submission, as Paul is defining it here, is not about action, it is about attitude. Assuming that your husband is leading you the way that God wants him to lead, there should be respect for the husband, and there should be love for the husband. Submission is not a sign of inferiority in any way. And before you want to take Paul or Jesus and dismiss what they say about this issue, let me just challenge you to think about who are the first people that show up at the tomb in the Gospels? They're women. As Paul is writing his epistle to the Romans, he's receiving patronage and he's receiving hospitality from a woman. Her name was Phoebe. The first woman that we hear about being converted in all of Europe, her name is Lydia. She is the first person that we hear about being converted in Europe. Jesus nor Paul have a problem with women. It's impossible based on the way that they live their lives. Paul tells us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Jesus Christ. There is no submission in the way that many of us want to take this text. So as we keep reading, you would think that we stop at verse 18, but we don't. There's actually commands for the rest of the family as well. Verse 19 tells us very clearly, Husbands, you are to love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now in first century context, women had a very difficult time getting out of marriages even if their husbands were treating them a way that they shouldn't have. All right, so if you're in an abusive relationship and you're in the first century, it's very, very difficult for anybody to believe you or for you to be able to get out of that relationship because in many ways they were viewed as property. And what Paul is saying here is, husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. Do not treat them as objects. Care about their entire well-being. He goes on to tell us in Philippians, excuse me, in Ephesians, that husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now I just got to tell you, that's a really hard thing to do. And you and I as, as husbands and men in this room with our wives, we're never going to be able to live up to that standard the way we should. But we are told by Paul to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church to the extent that he gave up his life for it. So we don't just stop with the commands to the wives here. The husbands have an equally, if not more important, role towards their wives. And then he says, children, obey your parents. It's as easy for me to see the benefit of this as a 30-year-old, but when I was 10, 
It was much more difficult to understand the significance of obeying my parents. Now, boys and girls and youth in this room, no one's telling you to obey your parents if they're asking you to do something that is illegal or immoral. It's not what Paul is teaching here. But Paul is saying that as the parent, they desire to do what's best for you. And they desire to love you and protect you. Even though now, it doesn't feel that way. One day down the road, hopefully, you'll see the significance of that. But children are called to obey their parents. And then he flips it back on the parents. And he says, fathers, do not provoke your children. Do not be harsh with them. I sometimes get mad at my three-year-old when he cries. And it could be the fact that he was just crying because he got hurt, okay? That's an unreasonable expectation for me to put upon my three-year-old to stop crying when he falls and hurts himself, okay? And the main reason I I don't want him to cry is because it's very annoying. (laughs) But I can't put that type of expectation on a three-year-old who falls and hurts himself. Suck it up doesn't work, okay? As much as I wish it did. I can't put unreasonable expectations on my children. You can't put unexpected expectations on your children. Your children might not do exactly what you did. They might not be as driven. They might be more type B than you are. And we shouldn't provoke them. We shouldn't put expectations on them that they can't handle. This doesn't mean that we don't call them to a standard, we don't call them to obedience, but it means that we don't go overboard in making them despise us. The human body is a system. We we learn this in biology, right? The human body is a system. So when one part of the body is hurting, it can affect the entire system. Those of you that have ever had a headache or a stomach bug or back pain, Even though it just might be hurting in one spot, it affects the performance of the entire body. And the family is the exact same way. Sociologists, anthropologists, scientists all still say that the most important family unit, excuse me, the the most important social unit in all of society is the family, still. And when one part of the family is not working the way that it should. It suffers. It's a system. Wives, when when you're not respecting your husband, assuming he's leading you in the Lord, it strains your relationship. Husbands, when you put demands on your wife or expect her to submit to you when she actually shouldn't, that strains your relationship. Children, when you constantly disobey with your parents and you argue with your parents, they're only going to put more demands on you. It's not going to make it go away. It's just going to be worse. And parents, when you and I put expectations on our children that are unnecessary, we strain relationships with our children. So when we look at the household code, as this is called, we realize that each and every one of us has a responsibility, has a role. Those of you that follow sports, there is a 
term that is often used, especially in basketball, a role player. This is somebody who might not be a star of the team, but maybe he comes in for 10 or 12 minutes and he gets you six rebounds and eight points, and he's a role player. He knows exactly what his job is, and he does it to the best of his ability. He's not upset because he's not the star. He knows what his role is, and he's a role player. And so for you and I, when it comes to the family, everyone in this room has a role. And for the family to operate at full strength, and operate the way that God wants it to. We need to abide by the role given to us. Now this isn't important because it's going to make life easy or because everything's going to be smooth sailing. It's not. The reason this is important is because if the family is functioning the way that God designed it to function, it can be a witness to those around you. Remember what we talked about earlier. The goal of this life is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to make his name known. If the family is operating, if your individual family is operating the way that God designed it to do, it will stand out from those around you. It will give you the opportunity to be salt and light to your neighbors, to other family members, to your coworkers. That's what it's about. We don't just do this so we can win a, a blue ribbon. We do this Because at the end of the day, it could help point someone to Jesus Christ. But the goal is to know Jesus Christ. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Not do you know information about him, but have you asked him to come and save you from your sin? Have you repented of that sin? And are you trusting in him daily to watch over you and to guide you? That's why we're here. That's the message of Christianity, that Jesus came to save all of us who are moving away from him. And he came to point us back to him through what he did on that cross. That's why the family matters. Because it can point people to the gospel. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we love you. And we thank you for what you taught us through Paul in this text. God, at the end of the day, all of us have to decide are we going to be the Lord of our life or are you going to be the Lord of our life? So God, I pray this morning we would remember that you are the Lord of our life. Forgive us of our sin. Help us to turn to you. Holy Spirit, now I pray that you would work in our hearts, convict us if there's sin in our life, and help us to respond in gratitude for what you've done for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.